One thing you hear me say a lot is that in order to interpret what is wrong, we must first understand what is right. So let's just take a moment to just quickly review what is normal, and then we can start looking at deviations from that and what could be the consequence and, and problems that result from that deviation. So when we look at the spine, right? now I love the way you guys are all thinking because you're all piecing things together really well. And you were talking about the spine, you were throwing in concepts around going from proximal to distal and things like that, which is great. So if we start with the spine, we know that we have this double sinusoidal curve. All right, so we have this sacral kyphosis, this lumbar lordosis, a thoracic kyphosis, and a cervical lordosis. Now, we all have individual variations in the actual geometry of those curvatures. So as a few of you touched upon, we can see people that can have very flat curves, right? So very shallow lordotic curve and a very shallow thoracic curve. We can see people that have a lot more curvature. So they've got quite a pronounced thoracic curve and quite a pronounced lumbar curve. But what we do want to see on either side is balance or symmetry between the two. All right. So if someone's quite shallow and it's balanced between the lumbar and the thoracic curvature, that's pretty good. It means that's probably what a, a normal curve is for them. And if someone's a bit more accentuated, but it's balanced, then again, that's probably what's more of a, of a, a balanced curvature for them, a normal curvature for them, all right? But there's also problems that can result when we start to deviate away from what's considered to be normal spinal geometry. Now, in level two, we talk a lot about, and we're going to start bringing it back, which is how we can actually use inclinometers to measure spinal curvatures and things like that to start quantifying some things a little bit better. Um, so yeah, we'll probably introduce that back into this level two that's coming up. But if you look at the measurements that people talk about for using things like inclinometers, which is a small handheld device that allows us to start quantifying curves, right, they talk about this curvature of around 30 to 35 degrees. So lordotic curves around 30 to 35 degrees and thoracic curve is around 30 to 35 degrees. So it's this balanced sort of curvature, right? So when we start seeing things that are too shallow, or things that are too accentuated, we start moving into potential for, for risk. Like there are problems that can come from that. So let's move off to the left now and start talking about some of the problems that can result from very shallow curvatures. Because this is more in line to what Mary's asking with the client that she's got. All right, so in the lower back, if we start to see a very low measurement, and I'm really interested more in what's happening at the lumbosacral junction. So that lower measurement there around the L5S1 area, right? If that's very flat, then that could have the potential to be moving someone towards the risk of developing like a, a lower back injury in the form of a disc injury. All right. Now, just a little caveat there. The measurement on its own can't like be a predictor of a disc injury. It's more if someone has lower back pain and we measure that lumbosacral angle and it's very flat, like zero or two degrees or something, then we can kind of go, okay, everything's pointing to maybe a potential disc involvement here, all right? But we don't just look at a flat back and go, oh my God, you're going to blow a disc in your back because there's no curvature there, no, all right? So when we look at these curvatures, right, all these curvatures have is what's known as face validity, meaning it's an indication, but... The reality is, is that there is no sort of like general norms that hold true across the board for everyone. 
there's only individual norms. So like everything we do, we have to look at the person in front of us, look at what they bring to the table and ask, is this normal for them or not? Okay, so hands up if that part's making sense. All right, now when we go up to the thoracic curve, what we're seeing now is someone with a loss of thoracic kyphosis. So what Mary's saying is that when she looks at this person in terms of their static postural representation, right, it looks almost straight. From their sacrum all the way up to the back of their head, the occiput, right, there's not a lot of geometry, a lot of curvature there. It's a very flat, shallow lumbar curve and a very flat, shallow thoracic curvature. In fact, she was saying it almost looks like it's straight, right? Now, believe it or not, I've come across a lot of this. So no, Aaron hasn't, hasn't come across it. I've seen it a lot. Now, I first started seeing it in certain populations, um, for example, like swimmers and dancers. You would see a lot of this, right? Especially with dancers, I was even going as far as seeing the reverse, reverse curvatures, meaning their lower back was more of a kyphosis and their thoracic curve was more flat towards a lordosis. That sort of re reversed the curves because of the actual demands of like ballet and stuff where they stand in that first position with their feet turned out, they're gonna tuck their tail under, which is rounding the lower back. And they're gonna pick this up and hold that position like this and like this. So they're learning to hold a rounded lower back, but learning how to extend through the thoracic on top of that. And they start to adapt to that over time. I right, also with my swimmer, Mark. That's my okay. swimmer. That's my 14 year old swimmer. He's exactly like that. Yeah. Trying to teach him the deadlift was the worst. Yeah. All right. And then, you know, again, I saw this in, we were talking about, there was like ballet, but swimmers as well, like breaststrokers, they have that. And you know, because of the nature of them doing this all the time with their hips pulling their tail up under a little bit as well. So I've seen a lot of it like that, but I've also seen a lot in females, right? It's been a common thing. Jimena has it. If you look at the geometry in terms of the curvatures that Hemi has, she's very, very flat through her thoracic, very flat, very flat through her lumbar. Right. I talked to you about the female that I was working on not long ago, the lady from the UK, right? That was member hypermobile. And I was doing all the TMJ work and stuff with her. Right. Well, when I looked at her spinal geometry, she had exactly the same thing. She was very flat. It looks almost like extension in, in, the, in the thoracic curve. Now, here's a little tip for you. When I'm talking to her about what she's been doing with other people for rehab, right? She said a lot of people, because her scapula was sitting off a little bit as well. Right, and I'll talk about why. But she was saying to me that a lot of people were giving her like corrective exercises. And I went, okay, so what type of corrective exercises? And they were giving her a lot of rowing type techniques, a lot of face pulls, like, you know, doing this sort of stuff and, and this sort of stuff for the scapula. We've got to build strength in the scapular setting positions and things like this. All right. And I just went to it, okay. And I said, and, and, and how did that work? And she goes, fucking hated it. It was always like afterwards, my upper back would be hurt. Like it's like my ribs would be sore and, and I'd feel like my ribs are displacing a little bit, you know, and having problems. And I'm going to explain why that makes absolute sense and why I said that's the last thing that you want to do when it comes to, you know, bringing exercise in to correct what we're seeing here. It's the complete opposite of what we should be doing. All right. So as we were saying, we're talking about the normal. So when someone's very flat through there, right, just like we talked about a flat lower back, could predispose someone to a disc problem, right? Having a very flat upper back can predispose people to shoulder problems. Now, why? Well, there's a reason why we have a thoracic kyphosis, right? Because 
the thoracic spine articulates with the ribs, right? And what that should create is it's a little bit like a barrel, like the chest is like a barrel. And the scapula are meant to sit on top of those ribs. So we have a concave surface on the underpart of the scapula. It's actually concave. It's not a flat bone like this. It's a concave surface. And why? Because you're meant to have a kyphosis with a barreling or a convex surface of the ribs. So now the articulation between the scapula, right, should sit nicely on that convex surface, which is the ribs, and it creates a good position for movement and for load transfer and stuff. But when somebody starts moving into too much extension and they lose that natural convexity of the rib cage, now we have a scapula that's sitting on more of a flat surface. It doesn't articulate as well. And now we get a lot more instability in the scapula. And you can see this when they're doing movements and things like that. There there's, seems to be like a, a loss of control of the scapula because the articulation is not as good as what it should be. All right. So not only does it look like it's popping off the back, right, but it also, when they start doing movements, they start talking about like getting impingement because a lot of shoulder impingement actually results from scapular instability. Now, we've known that for a long time. So scapular instability is one of the leading causes of many like impingement issues at the level of the glenohumeral joint. So this is people, now we've got to start going, okay, we need more scapular control. But in order to get better scapular control, is there a way that we can improve the articulation between the concave surface of the scapula on a flat, which we now want to be more of a convex position of the ribs? All right. Now, how do we do that? Well, it, it's quite funny because it, it sort of goes against what we talk a lot about doing with people. So, you know, a lot of times we talk about before you do overhead lifting and that, you want to pick that first rib angle up. Because a lot of us have too much thoracic curvature, right? And what happens is when we go into too much thoracic curvature, right, we lose the ability to pick up that first rib angle. So we lose that 10 to 15 degrees, which now throws out that sort of natural movement of that posterior tilt of the scapula with upward rotation, and then the effectiveness of the arm to get into that 170, 180 position overhead. That whole sort of movement relationship gets thrown out of kilter. All right, so this is why we often have to cue this. Well, believe it or not, for the other people, right, we want to cue the opposite, which is pulling this down a little bit and getting them to try to move into a little bit of thoracic flexion, especially in terms of that first rib angle position. We want to go from being flat to actually bringing in like about 10 to 15 degrees of first rib angle inclination like that, and then get them to do their shoulder movements from that position. And guess what can happen? It can take away the shoulder impingement. Because now the scapula articulates better with the ribs and you have a better foundation of movement. The timing comes in, all right? And you can see winging type relationships disappear because now there's better movement over the rib cage. So with all that being said, the take home note here is that if we're seeing a flat thoracic curve with shoulder impingement, Right. We, we've got to apply the same protocol for troubleshooting causing contributing factors, proximal to distal. That all applies. We go from thoracic to scapular to glenohumeral. We still have to screen for problems in terms of, is there a problem at the thoracic? Is there a problem at the scapular? Or is there a problem at the glenohumeral level that's resulting in the impingement pain? 
But usually what you're going to find is that the intervention is the complete opposite to what we would apply as intervention to someone that has too much thoracic curvature. So in this situation, if the thoracic curve being too flat is contributing to the timing issue that's leading to the impingement, well, then we need to do something at the thoracic level, which is doing movements that's going to increase that first rib angle, not decrease it. All right. And that's why that breathing technique I showed you is really effective because by getting people on their hands or their elbows where they're kyphosing like this and expanding their lungs and breathing in, right, they're using intrathoracic pressure to now push up against the anterior aspect of the thoracic vertebrae to start pushing more movement into flexion to increase the ability to move into a thoracic type kyphosis. And when I do that with Himi, you can see that there's certain parts of her spine that flex, and then she's got this dip where she's stuck in extension in certain vertebrae, and we've got to mobilize those and get a lot more thoracic flexion there. All right, so that's one technique. Right, the other thing we can do as well is that when they're doing any of their scapular work, like their infant reaching and things like that, because we still want to build strength in those key muscles, but we just got to make sure that they don't pick their chest up like we cue normal people to do. We actually get them to just drop it down a little bit and create that convexity of the ribs for the scapular articulation to be able to move over coordinated, you know, over those, over those ribs and do the reaching and the lifting and type stuff from that position. And that can make a huge difference just doing that. But then we also then have to go to the scapula, right? Because there could be nothing going wrong with the ribs, even though it's straight. It could be all from a problem in the scapula. And we can see a scapula that we talked about before being very unstable, but remember, we can also get a scapula that becomes very restricted and limited in movement, right? So if we look at Himi, she had the flat back, which we needed to do the breathing techniques in, but also, when I looked at her left scapula, it was actually sitting out more than her right scapula. So that's an indication that there's probably a little bit something going on. So when we looked at her left scapula, the medial border of the scapula was protruding out a little bit more than the right. And you could see she had less movement control on that left side. So if we're seeing that happening and that happening, so a little bit of winging, a little bit of anterior tilt, right? well, then we know that there's something that's holding the scapula in that slightly protracted, but also anterior tilted position. So when I lay her on her side and did that technique where we posteriorly tilt the scapula and pull it down, it was so stiff and uncomfortable, it was hurting her. It was really uncomfortable, but we did it. We kept mobilizing it and mobilizing it. And then we got to the point where I could get it all the way back and all the way down and it was free to move. And then when I sat her up, it was sitting a lot better on her back and it looked evil. And then when I got her to do the movements, there was less winging, right? So we had two problems. So now she's got to do the breathing technique and learn to do her arm movements with a first rib angle that's dropped down a little bit. And we needed to mobilize the position of the scapula and get that posterior tilt and retraction back because it was a bit stuck, which means we also had to go around the front and release through the pec minor and stuff like that through some hands-on work, right? And then when we did those two things, it took the impingement away. All right. And now we know what we need to do with her to maintain that and to move her forward and to get her strong again. All right. But the problem that she has, and this is a problem you'd be very careful if we don't do that and they keep doing these thoracic extension type movements and like these rows and these pulls into extension with rotation and, and things like that, what you'll start to see is a lot of pain 
around the shoulder and often starting to get referral down the arms that's a result of rib problems because the ribs start to get very jammed up in extension and in a position of inhalation. And those jammed up ribs with the thoracic um, restriction causes a lot of pain referral to the shoulder and down the arms and stuff like that. All right, so be aware of that. So pretty cool, the same protocol of proximal to distal, but the intervention is usually 180 degrees in the opposite direction to what we give people that have too much kyphosis. All right. So does that help, Mary? Yeah, that was good. I had the same, I don't know if you remember, but the first immersion, I had the same issue. And I have a very flat back from literally top to the bottom. Um, yeah, I your shoulder. Yeah, and then I had I always, ha I still have issues in my rhomboid sometimes when I do like pull-ups. So I have to be very careful. I do some... Um, scap movement before I do pull-ups and that that's better but I feel like sometimes my left side doesn't move as well as the right side um and I get a lot of I used to get a I couldn't even breathe at one stage um because of when I went to the osteo he gave me all the extension stuff yeah. which is crazy no and I, and I remember the session we did you were there and you were talking about it, and I got you on the ground and took away your pain straight away. And you were like, what, what, what? Like, you were shocked, all right? And all those, as Mary was at the stage where her scapula was stuck, but she was also experiencing now that next stage of dysfunction, which was the ribs were starting to jam up. And this is what we're talking about. And when people, when their ribs start to jam up, right, they'll often say it's like this hot poker, this burning feeling like in the back, like stabbing like this. And it's hard to turn and things like that. So we can see that. So again, the maintenance work for you, Mary, is that we just got to keep doing that scapular mobility work, right? And also the, the rib mobility work. And that should help. And yeah, and then start learning to do your shoulder work in a slightly kyphose position to bring back the curvature and avoid, as you already know now, this picking this up and all this extension, extension type work, right? You actually would get benefit from doing the opposite. So remember I said a lot of people have an issue in supination, like a supination weakness, which is supination is picking the chest up, pulling the shoulders back and, and supinating or externally rotating through the arms, right? Because most of us are collapsing into a field of gravity, into a flexion pattern, where we go into thoracic flexion, scapular protraction, internal rotation of the arms, all right? Believe it or not, but to help Mary, we actually want to strengthen her in that pronation type pattern not that supination type pattern so for example a great way for Mary to start strengthening for example her serratus anterior would be instead of doing like you see a lot of people doing for their upper back but they might just say for example cable rope and they're they're extending and they're retracting and they're pulling right which is that supinator pattern right which makes sense for people that are trying to go from this position to this position right but we want Mary to go from this position actually into that the opposite so instead of getting her to do a row with extension retraction and a pulling type movement we would get her to do a push with flexion protraction of the shoulder and reaching like that so we're actually going to be going into thoracic flexion full protraction upward rotation of the scapula and reaching with the serratus anterior driving the scapula around that convexity of the rib cage as she reaches and pushes like that on a slight angle like this and doing that 
right? Which is the opposite to what we'd normally want people to do, right? But this would make sense for her. And that's going to be mobilizing her rib cage because remember her rib cage is stuck in a position of inhalation. We need to mobilize it into a position of exhalation, right? When she's pushing, she can also be exhaling as well, like, like that. Because remember, coupling of inhalation, exhalation with thoracic extension versus flexion. So as we exhale, we want to flex and reach. We normally couple inhalation with extension and retraction like this. So she'd be doing those pushing movements. She can do double cable as well like that. Um, and that's going to be good. Or she could be doing things like forward ball rolls, right? On a Swiss ball with her hands like that. But again, instead of sitting this and reaching with extension, we sit her a little bit like that and reach and let the scapula protract around her, her rib cage as well. All right. And yeah, all those cues that we talk about, you know, in terms of sitting the, like, sitting the scapula for loading in the bench press, all this pulling back scapula, right? If she's going to do heavy lifting, we still want to do that for like a bench press technique. Because remember, it, that's a technique which is not functional. It's not how the shoulder normally works. Like we don't normally separate scapula and humor movement. Like we don't normally lock the scapula and then have the humerus moving independently on a fixed scapula. Right? There's a coupled movement that we're taking away, but we're doing that in a very heavy loaded environment to protect the glenohumeral joint. Right? But for Mary, it's going to be better for her to do pressing techniques where she doesn't have to retract her scapula to protect her shoulder in terms of minimizing elbow drop. We'd actually want her being able to do her pressing technique where she can actually protract and push and retract and protract and push like that. And again, we're building her in the direction that's going to help get it out of this problem as well. All right. Make sense, Mary? Yes, it does. Thank you. And just even Mary, just listening to this with her own intuition, understanding of her body in terms of what's been working, what hasn't been working. She's probably listening to the things I'm saying and probably going, that's probably going to feel pretty good. All right. Versus now knowing when someone's saying, let's do all this, she's going to go, no, that's, that's probably going to feel pretty bad. All right. So this is why it's so important that, you know, you start to listen to your body because your body will actually tell you if you're doing things that are favoring it or not. All right. And when you start to listen to your body and ignoring what other people say, like experts, that's when you become someone that really learns, you know, how to take your power back and actually start doing the things that's going to start moving you forward with the challenges that you have. Right? The body will always communicate with you through symptoms. We just got to ask ourselves, are we prepared to listen to those symptoms or not? That's it. All right. Let's stop there. Thank you.